You're God alone. Isn't that true today? It is. If these boots could talk, these boots right here. I got these boots in 2004. The reason I got those boots is my daughter had called. She was at UCLA in California. And it was time for graduation. She had graduated and she had a request as a graduation gift. She said, Dad, how about you and Mom go on a backpacking trip with us? We'd like to go take a trail in the Grand Canyon. We didn't think about it too much. We'd never done that before. We said, sure, we'll join you. So the first week in June 2004, put on these boots, and we made a trip to the Grand Canyon. I learned some things about the Grand Canyon. That's a hard trail. It's a deep hole. We took the Hermit Trail. It was nine miles. Needed two poles to make it across those rocky trails. The elevation change is 4,340 feet. That's way down. And you know what goes down? What? You got to come back up. We were headed down that morning on top of that rim. It must have been in the low 40s. Felt good. We put on these 30-pound packs. We started making our way down the trail. Took us a lot longer than we had anticipated. Began early afternoon. The sun had gotten really high. There was no shade. We were drinking water, but I wasn't drinking enough. So about that time, I started cramping up. I mean, serious leg cramps. And carrying a 35-pound pack, that's not a good thing. I remember sitting in the middle of that trail, Sean, and it was a tough go. I began to doubt that I could do this. Well, we sat there for about an hour, and then my daughter encouraged me to stand up to see if I could walk. It was interesting. It was the guys on the trip. Um, that had the trouble. With Diane and I, it was uh, my, my daughter and her husband uh, her, uh, and her parents, and um, her husband's uh, brother was with us. But we got up, got down to a big rock, we got, found some shade, and we stayed there for several hours, and the sun was starting to get real low. It got so dark, we really couldn't get to our campsite, which is down at the Colorado River. So we are just spent the night amongst some boulders. I remember thinking that night, God, am I going to get out of this? It was this tough getting down, can I get out? The next day, started making our way toward the Colorado River, and we started hearing a helicopter coming close. And we wondered what that was about. We decided we'd go check it out. Walked over toward that helicopter, and sure enough, uh, it was a ranger and he, was, he, he had landed uh, the copter right there by the Colorado River, and we noticed a, a guy that had hiked down there was laying in a stream, a real small stream, flat on his back. They were trying to keep him cool. And they put him on a stretcher, and six guys were carrying him out to this helicopter. That's when I said, I don't got this. God, I don't got this. Have you ever been in a situation in which you felt like, I don't got it? Today, 
David's in that place. We're going to look at a passage in 1 Samuel chapter 30 in which he's in a place that he doesn't got this. He doesn't. Let me see if I can set the context for you. David's on the run. You know, Jesus said in John 16, in this world you're going to have trouble. And we all do, don't we? Is there anyone in this world that doesn't have any trouble? Look around. We all have some sort of trouble. We should not expect that we will not have trouble. And David did, certainly, at this time. You remember David, the giant killer? He took care of Goliath. Saul invited him into the royal court. He began to play music for Saul. Saul became jealous of David. David ran for his life. He left the town, got into the southern area of town, down into the, uh, the area of Carmel and Zipha, a mountainous area, a rocky area. He began to... Um, uh, attract some friends, some refugees, and some outlaws, and they began to actually grow. He had 600 men with him, and they began to just live off the land. In fact, he was sort of a modern-day Robin Hood. He would help the people. He would watch their stock. He would watch their crops. He would do things for the people that way, and they would, in turn, help him by providing him food. Well, this went on and on, but Saul kept after. Saul would not stop trying to kill David. So finally, David says, the only way I'm going to stop this is I'm going to cross over into the land of the Philistines. And so that's what he does before this passage. He crosses over, but when he gets there, he's got to decide how he's going to make that work. And he goes to king of, the king of Gath, Achis, and he says, King I'll serve you. I'll be your bodyguard if you'll let us stay here. We'll just do what you ask us to do. And the king said, I think that's a pretty good idea, you and your 600 men. I like that. That will work well for me. So the king sends him to Ziklag. And so David spends about 14 months in Ziklag. And while he's there, he does some pretty hard things. He begins to make raids into the Amalekites area and begins to destroy villages. I mean, he totally destroys villages. He burns them. He kills everyone that's there, all the enemies of Israel. See, King Achish thinks he's going after the enemies of the Philistines, but David is going after the enemies of Israel. And he doesn't want the king to find out. So he's being very deceptive. But then things turn worse. What happens is the king says, we're going we're gonna to attack Israel. We want all the armies to gather together in chapter 29. And he gathers all these armies. And so David is summoned with his 600 men, and they arrive. They get to the rear of the army. And before the battle begins, the other commanders look at David and look at the king and say, why are you here? What is he doing here? We don't trust David. And so they send him back to Ziklag. And so he's been away for two days. And in chapter 30, we see what he sees when he comes back. Look at the verses. Verses. 
Then it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day. The Amalekites had made a raid on Negev and on Ziklag and overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. And they took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. Without killing anyone, they carried them off and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire. And their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted their voices and they wept. They wept until there was no strength for them to weep. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been to a place in which you had wept and there was no place, there was no strength left in you? When I was in my 20s, I was serving in a church as an associate pastor in middle, central Louisiana. I got a call after 10 o'clock. Don't you hate the calls that come after 10 o'clock at night? I got a call after 10 o'clock. It was from a sister. Her brother was in the hospital, had just been injured, had gotten hit by a car, was at the hospital. Would I go meet the parents who are there now? The senior pastor was out of town. So I remember getting in my car and driving over to the hospital and getting to the emergency room and there were the Dysons sitting there and you could see it on their faces. They were worried. So I sat with them and the doctor came out and he looked at them and said, Andy didn't make it. I'm sorry. And the tears started flowing. That's hard for anybody to see. I remember as a minister at that time trying to pray with them. I said, God, just give me the words to pray. And I prayed a prayer, but it just seemed so, so insignificant. It didn't seem to be helpful at all. I didn't know what else to do, so I got back in the car and drove home and got home. It was probably after midnight. Lay down in bed, and I just couldn't let it go. God said, get up. You need to get up and go find them. So I remember getting in the car, and one thing about the Dysons, they owned a, a little bakery, a donut shop down in Main Street, right on town, the town. And I remember, I wonder if they'll be there. So I remember going to that, that glass door and looking in. I see one of them at the coffee machine fixing up some coffee, and I started tapping on the glass. They looked up and they saw me and I walked over there and they said, come in. And we sat there in that donut shop and cried. Cried. There was no strength left. And they just told stories and they cried. That's what, David, that's what it's like with David. He's looking at those ashes seeing the burned out places, the smell of it, the lostness of it. Why did this have to happen? And if that's not worse enough, verse 6 says, Moreover, David was greatly distressed 
because the people spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and daughters. You know, when there are tears and when something goes wrong, when there's trouble in this world, there's always those that are quick to blame. There's always those that are going to start pointing fingers. There are always those that are wanting to throw stones. And so David was stressed now. He brought them there. He was responsible for that. No, he didn't cause the problem, but he was the one that brought them to the Philistine country. Can you imagine what was going through his mind at that time? I don't got this. Say it with me. I don't got this. Say it again. I don't got this. You know, in the time of a pandemic, I think we need to be honest with each other. Leaders, all of us. And we need to be honest to say, I don't got this. I'm not in control. Let's call it what it is. We don't. We're not in control. None of us has got it. So what does David do from here? What does he do from here? The first thing I want to, to, to look at, he does three things, one. One, he looks hindsight. He looks back. Two, he looks inward, inside. Then three, he looks forward, foresight. So let's look hindsight. Let's look back. Let's look at the decision he made. I'm sure he was asking himself, what did I say? Why am I here? It's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 27, verses 1 and 2. This is what it says. Then David said to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul will despair of searching for me anymore in the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. And so David arose and crossed over he and his 600 men, and they were with him. They crossed over. But look at, his, look at what he was telling himself. We need to be careful the things we tell ourselves. Do you ever analyze the things that you tell yourself? I think it's a good thing for us to talk to ourselves at times. It helps us to process things. But when we do talk to ourselves, we need to tell ourselves the truth. We need to be honest with ourselves. What is the facts? What did David tell himself? The first thing he said was, one day by the hand of Saul, I'm going to perish. Is that true? Will that happen? What is David forgetting? Do you remember much earlier in his life when Samuel visited him at his home of Jesse and his brothers were there? God sent Samuel there to anoint the next king. And Samuel was there, and the sons were coming out, and God would look, and Samuel said, is it this one? And God would say, no, I've not chosen that one. The next brother would come up, and God would say, I haven't chosen that one. The next one would come up. Went through all seven. Do you have any more, any more sons, Jesse? Oh, there's one more. He's out in the pasture. Well, bring him to us. 
So David comes out. God sees David. God tells Samuel, he's the one. He's the one I've chosen. We need to ask ourselves sometimes, are we chosen? Are you chosen? I think you are. And you need to discover what God has chosen you to be. See, David had a destiny, and you have a destiny too. You have a purpose. God has a purpose for you. You just need to discover what that purpose is. So the first thing that David is, is, is saying to himself is, David, Saul's going to kill me. He forgets that he has a purpose, that he has a legacy, that God has a claim on his life, that he has been anointed by God. And God will use all of us. I, some, I used to ask myself, well, how could God use me? There's nothing special about me. Well, there's nothing really special about any of us. See, God does the choosing. He looks at the heart. He doesn't look at the resume. He doesn't look at the references. He doesn't look at the grades. He just issues the invitation. Will you serve me? Will you serve me? I love being in a place like this with, with, which we, in a congregation which we have so many people serving. We do everywhere. The other day I drove up on our church property. It was over here on the corner, and I saw Sally Huff sitting down with the flowers in the dirt, no shoes on, legs spread out, hands in the dirt with the flowers, and the biggest smile on her face. And she said, Gary, I love to do this. What is God calling you to do? The next thing he said, it's noticed, is there's nothing better. There's nothing better for me. But would a better thing to say is there's nothing better for God? We often use the word there's nothing better for me. We need to ask the question, what is God's will, not what is my will? So David was looking back at that time and make a decision what was based, what was good for him. And in other words there, he says, escape, escape. He wants to get out. He wants to run. And so often when we get in those tight places, we want to run. We want to escape. We want to get out quickly. And sometimes the shortest, the shortest, the easiest thing to do is to run. But long term, it's not a good thing. Because look at where David is now. He's in the ashes, and his family is gone. So that's a look back. Let's look forward. Let's look inward. 1 Samuel 36b says this, But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. The New American Standard says, David strengthens himself. Now, sometimes it's up to us to make things different. We have to act. God is waiting on us to do something. We sit there waiting for him, but he's waiting on us. And notice at this point, God, David, David is looking at himself. And he's trying to strengthen himself. And that word strengthen, it's a Hebrew word. And in the New American Standard, it's, it's called kazak. Can you say that? Kazak. Say it. Kazak. And that word means to grasp, to grip to hold fast. And it's at this point David needs to look at himself and says, do I really believe God's there? 
Do I really think God's power is in me? Do I really? I remember when our son was in college at UT. I was in our family room, and he came in and while I was sitting there reading, and he turns to me as when he walks in the door, and he says, well, Dad, I want you to know that I believe. I gave him this look. You believe? He said, yes. You know, I've been thinking about my faith, and I just finished reading C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. And after reading that book and thinking about my faith, I've decided I do believe this. I do believe God's Word. I do believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. I do believe that He was raised from the dead. I do believe this, and I'm going to live by it. There are times we need to look at ourselves and to believe what we believe. Kazakh. That's what that means. Kazakh. It's like you've got a pair of boots here, and they're tied up. And you take these boots. You know when I've tied my shoes or my boots, they always come untied. How do we keep that from happening? We put another loop in it, don't we? We do a double tie. We tighten it up. It won't come loose then. Kazak. Kazak. Believe what you say you believe. The other way that word is translated is to encourage. To encourage. It means to proclaim, to give courage, to preach. It's used that way in the NIV. I ran across something that uh, the pastor at uh, Craig Gorshell, Life.Church, does. He wrote something that I think is great. He said he begins each day by actually saying to himself this out loud. Listen to what he does. He preaches to himself every day out loud. Jesus is the first in my life. I exist to serve and to glorify him. I love my wife, and I will lay down my life to serve her. My children will love God and serve him with all their hearts. I will nurture, equip, train, and empower them to do more for his kingdom than they can imagine. I love people, and I think the best about others. I am disciplined, and Christ in me is stronger than the wrong desires in me. I'm going to grow closer to Jesus every day. Because of Christ, my family is closer, my body is stronger, my faith is deeper, my leadership is sharper. I am anointed, I am empowered, I am equipped, I am called to reach people far from God. I am creative, I am innovative, I am driven, I am focused, I am blessed beyond measure because the Holy Spirit dwells in me. I develop leaders. This is not something I do, but who I am. My thoughts, my words, my imagination are under the power of Christ. I take all thoughts captive, make them obedient to Christ. I wake up with purpose, direction, meaning every day of my life. Pain is my friend. I rejoice in suffering because Christ suffered for me. I bring my best and then some. The world will be different and better because I serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Ziklag. You know, you don't need me to preach to you today. 
David need a, didn't need a preacher to preach to him that day. He needed to preach to himself. And that's what he did. He strengthened himself by proclaiming God. He said, David strengthened himself in the Lord. The Lord is. We sang it just a while ago. The Lord is. We proclaim the name of the Lord. The Lord is. There's no one like him. He is the first and the last. He is and he will be. He is stronger than anything we can imagine. He is just there. His, he is love. He is grace. He is wisdom. He is power. He is justice. He is, he is. He cares. He loves. He crowns. He refreshes. He restores. He renews. The Lord is. If you want to strengthen yourself, you proclaim the Lord. You start giving him praise. You discover that once you start giving him praise, you forget about your problems. You're praising God. God wants us to worship him for who he is, not for what he gives us. Do you worship God today for who he is? Really? That's what worship is. He worships God for who he is. Secondly, he strengthens himself in the Lord, his God. See, it's, it's more than just to worship the God. We need to worship my God. God wants to be relational. He wants to be personal. Well, you know the psalm, Psalm 23, for the Lord is my shepherd. I like nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. But did you get it? Do you see it? He leads. We have to let him lead. We're so busy controlling, running, escaping, trying to do it our way, trying to cut deals with the king, trying to do it our way. And what happens? We mess up royally. We need to take our hands off the steering wheel. We need to let God lead. We need to turn it over to him. See, it's more than just to be the Lord is, but the Lord is his God. Will you let God be your God? Have you ever taken the time to invite God in your life? We all fall short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. We all need to invite Christ into our life. I did. I did it at a football stadium when I was in high school. Have, have you? Have you done that? The only way David is going to make it out of a I don't got this situation is to realize the power in him is greater than the power that he has. He strengthens himself 
He encourages himself. He preaches to himself that God is. And not only that, that God is his. That's David's look inward. And let's look forward. Once he looks hindsight, once he does the insight, then he looks to the foresight. It gets to verse 7 and 8. Then David said to Abathar, the priest, the son of Amimelech, please bring me the epith. So, so the priest brings him this epith, and he says to him, shall I pursue this band, God? Shall I overtake them? And then God responds, pursue, for you will surely overtake them, and you will surely rescue all. See, once we do our part, God will do his part. We just need to trust him. We need to put our trust in him. He is the one that will strengthen us because trouble will come. It happens to all of us. It'll happen to you. In 1932, a young Thomas Dorsey was 32 years old. He was a fairly new husband. He and his wife, Nettie, were living in Chicago's South Side. It's one hot August afternoon. He had to go to St. Louis to participate in revival meetings. He was the featured soloist there. He really didn't want to be there because his wife was so close to expecting, just one month, one month from then. But he went anyway, and while he was doing the concert, at the conclusion of the concert, he sat down and a telegram was given to him from Western Union. And the words on that card were, your wife just died. When he got back home to Chicago, he learned, though, that she had given birth to a boy. So he had briefly some hope. But during the night, that boy died. So not only did he have a wife die, he had his firstborn die, and he had to put them both in the casket and bury them. Needless to say, he fell apart. There were lots of tears. He began to closet himself. He began to blame God. He said, God, I write all these gospel songs for you. And look at now. I'll just go back to jazz. The following Saturday, there was a friend by the name of Professor Fry who knew Thomas, and he paid him a visit, and he took him to the local neighborhood music school. And while he was there, it was quiet. Sun was creeping in through a curtain window, and he sat down at the piano. And his hands began to browse over the keys and began to play and pray.
Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, help me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am need to finish my story back in 2004 when I was in the bottom of that canyon we got up early the last day and made well the day before and made ourselves about halfway out so we could shorten the trip out and I can remember watching the night before the the vastness of that that sky and the stars shining it was a beautiful night I remember thanking God for this world. He has the whole world in his hands, you know. So we put our packs on early that morning and started heading out. And it wasn't even lunchtime. We were already nearing the top. It wasn't near as hard as we thought it might be. And I get about 200 yards from the end. And you've got you to know my daughter. Uh, she, she's a runner. And she's strong. In fact, she'll beat you on the hills every time. And she took off ahead of me and got to the top of that canyon, put her pack down, and came back down. See, she saw her dead with that pack, and I was just trying to make my way. And she came to me, and she said, Dad, I got this. And just for a moment, just for a moment, I stood there. Wait a minute. I've carried this pack this whole way. 
I think I can finish this. But then I looked at her eyes and saw the love that she had for me. And I swallowed my pride and I took that pack off. And I said, here, honey, thanks. Your dad appreciates it. You know, God is there to help us if we'll only let him. Will you do that today? Will you take his hand? Just bow right now. We're not going to have people come forward. Just bow your heads right now. What is God telling you today? What does God want you to do today? Do you have a relationship with him? Have you lost touch with him? Do you need to reconnect? Kazak? Do you need some strengthening? You could talk to him right now about that. Go ahead. Go ahead and talk to him. Say to him, I don't got this. Be honest with him. He knows your heart anyway. If there's any time that we need God in our lives, it's this time during a pandemic. The Lord is. And the Lord is your God. Will you invite him in? Will you let him strengthen you? Father God, hear the hearts of your people. They love you. And we know that you love us. We give you all the praise. We give you all the glory. It's not us. It's all about you. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.